Amen. We'll go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. Go. It's good to be with you guys. Well, it is now officially the Christmas season. I think we can officially say that. Uh, from all of you who are overachievers and who have been, like Hobby Lobby, by the way, have been decorating since July, um, to even those of you more traditional and orthodox folks who wait until the last bite of Thanksgiving dinner before you even think about pulling those boxes out of the garage and celebrate. And so even for you, I think it is now officially the Christmas season. Uh, and so at PBC, we're starting our four-part sermon series uh, through the Advent. And Advent simply means this. It is the coming of, the anticipation of, or the expectation of Jesus, of the first Advent of, of Jesus, and so we get to celebrate that uh, this season, and we entitled this series Christmas Foretold. And so we are going to be diving into uh, some of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold the coming and the birth of, of Jesus. And so if you haven't had a chance, grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 2. We want to make sure you are digging into the Word of God with us this morning. So whether that's your phone, your tablet, the written word of God, grab that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have those in the lobby on either side of the uh, doors. Uh, there are bookshelves. Grab one, take that with you. That's, that's our gift to you. And so Matthew, we're, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 this morning is kind of going to serve as, a, as the front porch, so to speak, and set the scene for us this morning uh, and really help us understand what's going on in the Christmas story. We're going to be primarily camping out in, in Micah chapter 5. And so you want to make sure you grab those. Well, Phillips Brooks, uh, there's a guy by the name of Phillips Brooks. He was a 19th century Episcopalian Anglican uh, minister. And, uh, Phillips Brooks was born in 1835 uh, in, in Boston. He was a descendant of one of the uh, famous uh, English Puritans, John Cotton. Uh, he went to Harvard uh, and graduated at the age of 20, so he's kind of a smart guy. Uh, and then he decided to go to seminary. And he went to the Virginia Theological Seminary where he graduated, and he went on to minister and pastor at a couple churches in Philadelphia uh, from 1860 to 1869. And then from 1869 to 1891, uh, he moved back to Boston and ministered at a church there, and then ultimately became the last 15 months of his life until his death in 1893 uh, was the Episcopalian Bishop of Massachusetts. Uh, he was uh, an outspoken advocate of the abolition of slavery during the American Civil War. Uh, he, was, uh, he strongly supported the cause of the North and even uh, spoke at Abraham Lincoln's uh, funeral. Towards the end of the Civil War, however, Phillips Brooks decided to take a few-month sabbatical, and he traveled to the Middle East. And in his travels, he went to Jerusalem, and on Christmas Eve in 1865, uh, he rented a horse and rode about seven miles southwest of Jerusalem to a small, tiny town called Bethlehem. And there he marveled at everything that he saw in Bethlehem and uh, the place where Jesus was born, and he visited there. And so he came back to the United States, and about three years later, still overwhelmed with his experience in Bethlehem, something that he would later call a singing of my soul. He went and wrote... Uh, took pen to paper and wrote the song and the lyrics for the popular Christmas carol that we sing today called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. 
Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. And so if you haven't quite caught on yet, we are diving into the scene of the birth of Jesus and specifically the significance that the role, Beth, uh, the role that Bethlehem had played in the birth of Christ, in the advent of Christ. And so walk, let's walk through Matthew chapter 2. We see that after Jesus was born, wise men came from the east. Now, not to completely uh, ruin your beautiful nativity scenes that you have so eloquently set up in your homes and designed on your Christmas cards, but this is all we know of the wise men. We know that they came after Jesus' birth, likely a year or so later, and he was not in the manger at the time of their visit. He was at their, they came to his home, and you see that in verse 11. They came from the east, but we're really unsure of where they came from. We don't know if they were Babylonian wise men. Some of your translations say magi. We don't know if they were Persian wise men. The common thought is they were Persian magi because of their uh, understanding and their proximity to Hebrew scripture. And that would have stemmed from the time of Daniel. You read that in Daniel chapter 5. Clearly, they were looking for the Messiah. We also don't know how many there were. I mean, traditionally, we say that there were three, right, based off of the three gifts that they gave to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we, we just don't know. But however many there were, and wherever they came from, they went through Jerusalem asking, where is the king of the Jews? Where is the Messiah? And this is really where you would expect to find a king, right? You would go to Jerusalem. You would go to the capital of Judea. It's like you would go to Washington, D.C. and expect there would be the president of the United States, or you go to London and, and expect the prime minister or the royal family to be. They went to Jerusalem because that's where they expected to find the king. Well, the problem with that was is there was already a king, King Herod, and that's, that's who hears of this. Now, King Herod was a Roman ruler. He was not Jewish, although some of his ancestors came from Edom. He was he was not really Jewish. He was appointed by the Roman officials uh, to be ruler over Judea. He heard this was going on, and in the text in Matthew 2, it says he was troubled. This is probably not a strong enough word to describe what was going on through, through Herod's mind. Herod was extremely self, selfish. He was extremely self-driven. He was ruthless. Uh, he, was, he was cruel at times. He was so protective over his seat in Judea, that he even had some of his own family members executed just to protect his right to, his right to rule. So he was troubled. He was a little ticked, we'll say. The people of Jerusalem were also troubled, right? They knew who, they knew who uh, Herod was. They knew his reputation. He had, a, he had an interesting reputation. He would, he would build architecture. He would build grandiose. He built a temple. Uh, the second temple was very, very large, very magnificent, but... Um, but he was ruthless, and so the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem were, were troubled as well. Who knew what this king would do? And so then he asked the religious leaders, brings them up to them, or he brings them in, and these are the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, and he says, where, where is this king? Where is this king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews, so where is this king of the Jews? interesting to see that 
the, the scribes, the chief priests, they knew exactly where Jesus was. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew where he was, and they just tell this jealous and cruel ruler. They don't go. They just tell him where he is. And they reference a prophecy from, from the prophet Micah. So let's look at Micah chapter 5. And as we look at Micah chapter 5, we're actually going to expand beyond verse 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 5. And so we're going to go a little bit beyond verse 2. And there are three key things I want us to extract out of this passage this morning and really uh, help us uh, see the significance of Bethlehem and the role that it played uh, in the advent and birth of Christ. Point number one is this. When hope is seemingly lost, look to the providence and the sovereignty of God. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. During, during Micah's time, during the period of this writing, it was about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It was a tumultuous time for the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdoms of the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And remember, the tribes of, of the people of Israel were split into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel to the north, whose capital was Samaria, and you had the kingdom of Judah to the south, whose capital was Jerusalem. They were in tumultuous times. At this time of the writing, the Assyrians, a, a brutal kingdom just that lay just to the north of Israel, was invading the kingdom of Israel. And they would ultimately invade and take over Samaria. The people of Jerusalem, who Micah was specifically talking to, were troubled. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. To this day, uh, there are tablets housed in the British Museum that have inscriptions uh, of depicting of what exactly these Assyrian rulers would do to their captives. It is horrific, horrific stuff, and it is in graphic detail, and you can still see that today. They were terrified. And it wouldn't be in the too near distant future that the Babylonians would come and invade the kingdom of Judah and completely wipe out and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and send the people into exile. This is the time that they are in. This is the time of Micah's prophecy. They were in troubled times. Now, this was because, predominantly because of their rejection of God and their disobedience of the law of God. God gave them up to their enemies. Because of their disobedience, how could there possibly be hope in times like that. This Christmas season sometimes has the unfortunate uh, habit of reminding us of difficult things that have happened in the last 12 months, right? Times of loss where we may have lost a family member or a friend. Um, difficult times of hardship, job loss, job change, uh, health issues, separation. We lose friendships, family members split, divorce even. This time of year can do that. It can remind us of what has happened in the last 12 months. It's so easy for us to get short-sighted when things get hard, or when things get difficult. But God had something else in mind. Sometimes when these things get difficult, we, we think or we wonder, how could, God, how could God possibly use something like this? What purpose does God have in this, but God does have a sovereign plan, and we see that. Remember, these events took place 700 years before Jesus was born, and in that 700-year period, there was a 400-year period known as the intertestamental period. It was the time that was 
the silence, the revelatory silence of God. From the time of Malachi to the ministry of John the Baptist, God was silent. So 700 years, think about that. 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah prophesied this. Within that 700 years was 400 years of silence of God. Things were looking bleak. Things seemed hopeless. It seemed so far. But on this side of the gospel in 2019, sitting here in Phoenix Bible Church, we see that God fulfilled his promise. That should give us hope. That should cause us to run to the sovereignty of God. In grammar, there's this thing called the conjunction. Some of you learned that in Schoolhouse Rock, right? I'm not going to sing the song. I won't get that stuck in your head. It's been stuck in my head for like two weeks. Um, but it's called the conjunction, right? In Scripture, one of the most beautiful conjunction words is the word but. And we see that in in the first or in the second chapter, I'm sorry, the second verse of Micah 5. But you, despite the people of Israel rejecting God and disobeying the law of God, his sovereign will goes forth. Nothing thwarts the will of God. We see that a similar conjunction in Ephesians 2. Paul wrote this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And there it is, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ. Yeah, we see in Acts 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch. This is one of my favorites. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. There is hope in his sovereignty, which is God's authority, and there's hope in his providence, which is the way in which God enacts his purpose. Point number two is this. God uses obscure and insignificant things for his purposes. So God, through Micah, addresses the people of Jerusalem, of Judah, who are in a hopeless situation, in a hopeless situation and says, I'm not done, I have a plan, and by the way, just like everything else, it's a redemptive plan. Micah 2, 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. By the way, Bethlehem means uh, city of bread. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Notice the location of God's redemptive plan in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. So where does Bethlehem come from? What does this small agricultural town that lays just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem have anything to do with the birth of Jesus? Let's go back, shall we, and look at uh, the book of Ruth. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you the Spark Notes version, and I'm going to try to be really quick with it because I'm going to try to condense like four chapters or five chapters of Ruth in a very short period of time. But this is one of the most beautiful stories of redemption in the Bible, aside from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the story of Ruth. There was a famine in the land. There was no food. There was a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons. They lived in Judah, and they decided because of the famine, they're going to leave Judah. Guess what city they're from? Bethlehem. Take, that, take note of that. It's on the test later. 
They come from Bethlehem. They leave Bethlehem. They leave Judah, and they go to Moab, another nation outside of the covenant promise of God. They go to Moab, and in Moab, uh, eventually, uh, Elimelech dies, and then their, Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women, Gentile women. And then ultimately, the two sons die. And Naomi is sitting there, left with just nothing left. Her husband's dead. Her two sons are dead. And she has her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth. So ultimately, Naomi just <clears throat> pulls her daughter-in-laws together and says, look, there's nothing left. I'm a widow. I need to go back. Ten years later, by the way, she was in Moab. I'm going to go back. So she sends Orpah and Ruth and says, go back to your people. Go back to your home. Orpah eventually goes, and Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. And she has that famous, there's that famous verse in Ruth that says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Remember that? So there they go. They leave Moab, and they go back to Judah. And guess what city they land in? Bethlehem. There you go. They went back to Bethlehem. Well, they're, they're poor, and so that means Ruth is gleaning at the fields, that she's going on the outside edges of these fields and gleaning uh, for grain to feed her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Well, she just happens to be gleaning of, on the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Naomi. He happened to be a kinsman redeemer, which a kinsman redeemer, we won't go too much into it, but a kinsman redeemer was, was basically a formal role that a man played in, in, in the kingdom of Israel, in the kingdom of Judah, uh, and it was, it was uh, laid out in the law of God. And so Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. She's gleaning from the fields. He is enamored with Ruth, by the way. He likes Ruth. She's nice. There's a problem. She is a Moabite Gentile woman who is a widow. Kind of a hopeless situation for, for Ruth, if we were to be pretty candid about that. So Boaz says, well, <clears throat> I really like her. There's a problem. There's another relative that's actually more closely related to Naomi, who's also a kinsman and redeemer. So I need to go to him and tell him, well, Naomi's going to sell the property that belonged to Elimelech because she's poor. She needs money. So she sells the property. But this guy, this other relative, has the right to, to claim that first. And so he goes to the relative, calls him over, and says, look, Naomi is going to sell this property. She's going to sell Elimelech's property. You are the first kinsman redeemer. You are the first, you're the closest relative of hers. So it's up to you. You can buy this stuff. So he says, okay, cool. I'll buy it. Boaz says, well, there's a twist. There's a Moabite widow that's, that comes along with that. And because of your role as a kinsman redeemer, you've got to marry her, and you have to have sons and carry on the family legacy. And he says, well, hard pass. So, <laughs> so Boaz says, okay, cool. Well, I'm next. I'm second in line. So let's do this thing. So he buys the property. He marries Ruth. And this all happened in Bethlehem. And guess what? They had a son. The son's name is Obed. The Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. That's King David, for those of you that know a little bit of your Old Testament history. Something so insignificant, uh, God using a hopeless situation in Ruth, something as insignificant as a place, as this tiny little farm town in Bethlehem, he uses it. Remember the Davidic covenant? Right, so David, David ultimately came out of this. He was the grandson of Obed. Remember the Davidic covenant where God said, your offspring, uh, out of your offspring will be the Messiah and his kingdom will be everlasting. Remember that? Remember in chapter 1 of Matthew, that chapter that we tend to skip over so quickly because there's a million names in there that most of them we can't pronounce? Well, that just happens to be the genealogical record from David all the way to Jesus. This is, this is big stuff. Isn't it so much like the character of God to take something so seemingly obscure 
and use it for his purposes. Ruth was in a hopeless situation in a small town in the middle of nowhere. By the way, in Joshua 15, when Joshua goes and conquers the promised land, he takes the promised land over. In Joshua 15, we see him list out about 100 cities that comprise the kingdom of Judah. Bethlehem isn't even mentioned in that. It's not even mentioned as a city in Joshua 15. This is how small this, this town is. And listen to Paul's words um, in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise accordingly, according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Here's that conjunction again. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These things seem so insignificant to us, but that's the beauty of it. God uses it for his glory, not ours. The story of Ruth, that was, that was about God's glory. He says in verse 2 of Micah, for, for, from you shall come forth for me. It's for you, but... This is primarily, this is, this is for me, God says. Paul says, God uses these things so that no one may boast. God ultimately gets all the credit. Zach Eswine, pastor and author, said this about the small things. You will be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. But almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things for a long period of time with God. I read that a little bit slower. Long period of time with God. Point number three is this. God's promises are God's promises. In God's sovereignty, he tells the people through Micah, the one who will come out of Bethlehem is from of old, from ancient days. This, this is not just, this just didn't spring up. God's sovereign degree is from everlasting. It was from the beginning. This didn't spring up out of nowhere. The Assyrian assault on the kingdom of Israel, the Babylonian assault on the kingdom of Judah, God didn't suddenly sit there and be like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This is from everlasting. This is from old. This has been planned for a long time. And the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was prophesied 700 years before it happened. And when it was prophesied, he said, this is... This is the plan from the beginning. When God says something is going to happen, it happens exactly as he said it would. Look at the next few verses in Micah. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. By the way, that's talking about Mary. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to Jerusalem, to Judah. No, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. God says, look, I'm giving you up, but the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he will shepherd, as it says here in Micah, he will shepherd you with the strength that only belongs to God and you will dwell securely in him and you will find peace in him. His greatness will not be confined to this space in time or this place. But it is 
It, is, it, is, it covers the whole earth. This passage is about the unfailing and unbreakable promises of God. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them from existing and maintain, keeps them existing, not from existing, hold on a minute, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to, to fulfill his purposes. We can take refuge and find our hope in the promises of God. Just as God promised that Jesus would be the seed of a woman and crush the set, the just as God promised Jesus would be the Jesus would be from the seed of a woman and crush the head of Satan, Genesis three. Just as God promised to Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis twelve that a seventy-five-year-old childless man would be the father of a great nation and nations and kings would come from would descend from him. Just as God promised to Israel he would deliver them out of Egypt and into the and out of the hand of Pharaoh in Exodus six. Just as God promised to Israel through the Mosaic Covenant that blessings and cursings would be dependent upon their obedience to God, Exodus 19 through 24. Just as God promised Joshua that he would lead them to the people, he would lead the people of Israel to the promised land, Joshua 21. Just as God promised David that through his offspring would come the Messiah and his kingdom would be everlasting, 2 Samuel 7. Just as God promised to Mary that nothing is impossible with God, Luke chapter 1, and she, as a virgin, would give birth to a son the Holy Son of God. Just as God promised that the Messiah Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Just as God promised that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous and victorious, Zechariah 9. Just as God promised Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our our iniquities, Isaiah 53. And just as God promised that Jesus would be resurrected from the grave, Psalm 16. It all happened just as God promised it would. Just as God promised that Jesus would come again from the clouds of heaven as the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, brothers and sisters, just as God promised it will happen, it will happen. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate the advent of Christ. God sent his Son on a cold night in a tiny little farm town in a manger of all places a feeding trough for livestock and swaddling cloths, just as God said he would. We celebrate that this season. We celebrate that during Christmas, and we worship Jesus rightly while we wait patiently and eagerly for the second advent, for his coming again. So what is our response as we enter this advent season? Do we, like Herod, consumed with our own desires, try and thwart God's promises and shut Jesus out? Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not as bad as Herod. I don't go killing family members and doing all this crazy stuff, right? Trying to shut Jesus out. But in our hearts, do we shut Jesus out? Do we, do we look at this, do we come in this time of season and there's so much pressure from, from all of these corners and all of these points in society and our culture that really just try to diminish the meaning of Christmas and the impact of Christmas and the impact that, that Jesus had in the promises of God. And we try to just shut Jesus out. We say, well, I'm down with this God thing, but I don't know about Jesus. Do we, like the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, simply know these things but fail to recognize that Jesus is right here, right now? 
Do we come into this time of year and come into this season and be like, yep, Jesus got that. Yep, Bethlehem, wise men, shepherds, got all that. We know this is, this is the reason for this time of year. But do we recognize that Jesus is, is here? Do we recognize that Jesus is here with us now? We recognize that. Or do we, like the wise men, run to Jesus from the most distant places and worship him as king and lord, even in the most quiet places? The wise men were not from Israel. They were not from Judah. They were not from Jerusalem. They were from the east. Some were close or some were far, but they were from the east. They knew that Jesus was coming. They knew the Messiah was to be born. And they didn't come just looking for him, trying to overthrow Herod and overthrow the Roman rule over Israel. They came to do what? To worship him. And they found him in the most obscure little town. And all they did was worship. Do we do, we do that? The last part of Phillips Brooks' uh, song, The Little Town of Bethlehem, goes like this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time that we are together, that we celebrate you, celebrate your promises, celebrate all that you have done and celebrate all that you will do. God, we worship you, creator and the sustainer of all things, one who gives us life and wakes us up in the morning, one who puts breath in our lungs. God, we worship you. We thank you for sending your son to be the propitiation for our sin, to give us a way to everlasting and eternal life with you. So Father, may we celebrate rightly this Christmas season. May we, may we recognize that this is about you and your glory, that we would give you all of that That we would celebrate Jesus who came and gave us life. And so, Father, we, we thank you. We pray that by your spirit that you would continue to transform our minds, that you would transform our hearts, that we may see you worship you properly. That we may proclaim your truth, your gospel to the ends of the earth. And so Father, we, we ask for your help in that. We love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.